Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Dylan Grice of Calderwood Capital Research. How are you doing, man? Not too bad at all. We're not we're not going to be using video, I'm afraid. So just to conserve bandwidth, so you can um, you can take your you can you can take your cock out and do whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you mean I can stand up? Because <laughs> you don't want to see, obviously, I've got nothing left. Oh, this is true, this is true, this is true. <laughs> okay, I will shut this down, you can go from there. That's brilliant. Um, I'm wondering whether we should keep that in the show. Yeah, why not? Why not? So, keeping keeping to that keeping to that theme will make it interactive. So it's going to be a very a very quick quiz. I'll give you the first answer, and then you can try and work, deduce the rest. Professor, and I now use Professor Neil Ferguson with Professor in inverted commas. <laughs> Professor oh, Neil okay. Ferguson, cock down. What's the EU? This is quite a difficult one. It's quite a difficult one. Uh, the EU is block down. Okay. Ken Hom. Ken Hom. Walk down. Walk down. Trini and Susanna. Frock down. Frock down. Jancis Robinson. Oh, I don't know that one. She's a wine critic. Oh, okay. That's Cork down. down. Okay. Hock down. Nicholas Sturgeon or Dylan Grice. Jock down. Jock down. No. Iron Maiden. Uh, God, I should know that. I love Iron Maiden. Um. That's rock down. Oh no, that's so Ch- easy. <laughs> that's, that's the easiest one. Oh my God. Channel, channel, channel five. Um. Lockdown. I was going to say and, shutdown, and, but well, well perhaps. <laughs> uh, and finally, Starship Enterprise. Uh, beam down? No, can't be. No, it's got Sp- Spock down. Spock down. Spock oh down. God, of course, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. At, at, at which point it became abundantly clear that at least one of the panelists on today's show had lost their mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Was there a delivery of wine at your uh, at your apartment this afternoon? That- well, it's not. It's not so much a delivery. It's more like a kind of constant. It's like a constant hoarding has set in. Right. So all, all, all that deliver booze can really do is just add to the sort of beer and wine mountain. Yeah. That's that's, that's, that's now accumulating. So the EU had its wine lakes, but you know, my Belsize Park Erie is, is is soon developing its own. Yeah, something similar. To, uh, well, maybe a, maybe a bit a, a beer pond. Well, with MMT going on potentially. Uh, it's going to be worth more money, isn't it? You'll be you'll be able to sell it. I don't know. I mean, that's one of the first questions. Do you want, do you want to do the formal introductions, uh, Paul? Uh, um, I think we're beyond that now, aren't we? Uh- <laughs> uh, we probably we probably are. We probably are. So let's go straight in, straight into things. And that was going to be my first question then of, of Dylan, which is um, uh, inflation versus deflation. What's your what's your thinking? Let's get into the nitty gritty of the big macro stuff that matters. Oh God, am I allowed to say I don't know? Yeah, that'll do. We'll allow that. Yeah. Uh, At least it's the longest, uh, longer answer would be um, inflation. Um, except I've been saying that for ten years now, and it keeps going down. So I'm beginning to think that I clearly don't have much of a handle on um, on what, whatever the inflation or deflation generating mechanism is. I'm obviously not very very good at predicting it. So um, I kind of seem to have a bias towards inflation. I, I keep getting it wrong. Could it just be that we're not looking at inflation in the right place? Because there's clearly inflation, but it's um, a question of how you measure it. 
Well, I, I, I'm not even sure if, that, if I agree with that, to be honest. I used to agree with that, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure I do anymore. And, and I'd say two things. Firstly, about 10 years ago, I did make a, a, a very kind of um, precise um, prediction, uh, you know, on numerous occasions, actually. But I did, spe- I did specify the CPI, right? So it wasn't some kind of, um, you know, vague notion of prices, you know, in inverted commas, prices everywhere kind of going up. Um, I was being very, very specific about the CPI. I did expect the CPI to um, to be in the kind of 4 to 5% range um, by, I said, in 10 years' time, and I was saying this in, in 2010. And um, clearly, here we are 10 years later, and inflation, I think, is about 50 basis points lower on, on an annual rate. Um, so, so yeah, so that's about, you know, I'm not... You know, there's no kind of get out of, oh, they're just not measuring it properly. And then the second thing in terms of the asset price inflation, I think if you if you look at the the, the kind of spreads, if you look at credit spreads, and um, and this was before the kind of um, the puke in, in, in March, um, if you look at credit spreads, um, if you look at um, EM spreads, if you look at you know, equity, if there's such a thing as an equity spread, but if you look at, you know, like the equity earnings yield versus real um, bond yields, the spreads versus government bond yields are actually kind of roughly in line with where, the, with where they've been over the last, you know, 50 or 60 years, right? So they're, the, the price of risk relative to risk-free, which I know none of us particularly like as 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 a term, but we know what it means. You know, the, the price of risk pricing relative to government bonds is actually is well within its historical range. It doesn't look completely out of kilter at all. What does look completely out of kilter is government bonds, right? Um, and having government bonds at these kind of yields. And um, so I think that so that's the starting point. If you're looking at inflation of asset prices, your starting point is inflation in government in the government bond market. Then you say, well, is there inflation in the government bond market? Because government bond yields should be roughly equivalent to nominal GDP growth. And um, nominal GDP growth is, has collapsed, right? So it's not completely irrational that government bond yields have collapsed as well. Um, uh, and so that would be the kind of that would be my kind of summary position. So I kind of look at the same stuff as you guys. I see these these guys in charge of central banks. So I, I, I don't really think they know very much. I certainly don't think they know what they're doing. And the fact that they are confident that inflation is under control gives me no confidence at all. The fact that they're printing lots of money gives me no confidence at all. So you know, I put it all together. And I think, yeah, you know, I, I think it's going to be inflation. But then I think. My God, I've been seeing that for so long, and it's still not happened. That you know, am I surely I'm missing something? There's a, there's a phrase by by Grant Williams, which is that hasn't isn't the same as won't. So just because we've had ten years of well, ten years and plus of, of counting of of monetary insanity, doesn't mean that we won't see that sort of inflationary burst at the end. That my my starter for ten would be that, and I keep making reference to this, that at the most recent Money Week annual conference, which I think was in November last year, the thing that most spooked me was there was general consensus among the panellists that we were going to get MMT. And I thought that's a bit scary. And of course, we've now got effectively MMT, albeit we didn't know what the mechanism was going to be. And now we know because it's called coronavirus. The thing that really alarms me about, well, one of the many things that alarms me about the lockdown is 
effectively universal basic income or whatever whatever that UBI stands for has basically been rolled out now. And it t- you know what? It turns out if you give people money for nothing, they kind of like it. So it's going to be really difficult to get this genie back in the bottle now. No, I think that's right. I, I listen, I, I, again, I, I kind of agree with, you know, I agree with all of that. I think we probably are of a similar bent in, in, in that respect. I just keep, and Grant's absolutely right, you know, hasn't, you know, doesn't doesn't mean can't. <laughs> Um, exactly. and it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean won't. As an investor, you know, you, you are largely living in the future. You know, your investments are um, going to play out in some kind of, you know, unknown and, and unspecified, unspecified and largely unforecastable future. But we still have to make those investments. And we still have to try and kind of gauge our, our understanding, you know, one way or another. And, you know, there has to also be some kind of intellectual honesty. You know, the fact is, if you've been, if you've been, if you've been saying something that's not happened for 10 years and saying, well, yeah, but it's going to happen eventually, then, you know, why is that, is that as an investor, is that practically useful? Um, and I think the answer is no, it's not. And I think that, I said, the, the interesting thing to me is, um, okay, I'm obviously crap at forecasting inflation. Can I build a portfolio that doesn't matter? Mm. Can I build a portfolio that's not going to be wiped out if I make forecast errors on these kind of things? And, um you know, I think that's uh, you know, I think that's maybe a more practical kind of uh, um, endeavour, if you like, a more practical kind of question to try and answer. I mean, you you make a good point there that it depends what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to get the statistics right, or are you trying to build a portfolio or make money? Yeah. On this call, I'm not the economist here. I'm a technical analyst, so I'm more biased towards what I see in the market and market psychology for my analysis as opposed to looking at things like inflation. But when I hear people saying, if you want to know the true rate of inflation, it's better to look in places like shadow stats. And when you see the prices of goods going up um, and also you see things like house price inflation, I'm not making a, an argument as to whether there is or isn't inflation. I can just see that there are there are places where clearly the money yeah. is is ending up. The money that's being printed is going into into certain assets. Whether we're about to get a huge period of deflation, that's the the, the next big call. Um, but would you, as an economist, would you not be looking at places like shadow stats for? potential signs of inflation or the real inverted commas level of inflation? No, I wouldn't actually. And I think, um, I mean, I I have actually looked at at those numbers um, and I think it was some time ago now, but their estimates of inflation were like 9 or 10% or something like that. You correct me if I'm wrong. Is is that about the, 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 the ballpark? That certainly sounds about right. I mean, again, I don't, I don't, you know, religiously follow this stuff, but, I would I would imagine it's a double digit uh, figure. Yeah, so that so the, you know the, the implication is if, if 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 inflation if they're measuring inflation, you know by by that doesn't doesn't that mean that real GDP is like really negative? Well, there's 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 something else there's something else that I'd add, which is not to sound overly technical or or anal, but from a classical or Austrian economic perspective. Inflation isn't so much the price rise in goods and services; it's the amount of money printing that pre is a precursor to that. And the actual what we call inflation is actually a second order 
effect that derives from an increase or decrease in the money supply. Right. So, so this is where I think I think this gets to the very heart of the of the problem. So to that, ex- so to that extent, the inflation has already happened. Well, this is it. And it, so the Austrians, the, the Austrians, uh, of course, are, are totally right. Um, and I think that because that's the that that is inflation. As soon as you create money out of nothing, it will be spent on something. And what it gets spent on is necessarily a distortion, right? Because someone who had um, uh, who created uh, nothing exchanged for um, with someone who created something, right? So you've now just you've you've now just introduced a wrinkle into the kind of relative pricing structure, which kind of then plays out um, throughout the kind of um, structure of relative prices. Um, so I, I absolutely agree with that. And um, so as soon as central banks create money, um, um, add to the monetary base, then they've created inflation. What the Austrians, I think, would also say, which I also agree with, is this idea that, you know, the, the, the CPI somehow measures some notion of inflation is, is just a nonsense because it's not measurable and it's not observable. And I agree with that too. Um, but then if you, if you bring it back to where we started, whereas I said I'm kind of, you know, I've, 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 I've grown to become quite agnostic on the, on the question. He said, if, if the Austrians are right, and I think they are, you can't measure it. You don't know what it is. You know, well, <laughs> what chance have we got predicting it? It's like, it's like a Neil Ferguson pandemic forecast. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Neil Ferguson. I mean, the guy yeah. was trying his best, you know. I bet he was. Um yeah. Yeah, but let's let's well exactly. Oh, we oh, talking about talking the numbers. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, well, exactly because he was certainly punching above his weight until quite recently. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Cockdown, as I say, I, I'm going to get that one in twice just because I just because I am childish. <laughs> so so Dylan, how, how let's, we started sort of in the middle of things, but let, let's sort of go back go back to the to basics. What? How did you first get into the the world of finance? That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> so my mum, uh, bless her, is um, an unreconstructed um, socialist. Uh, her, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was not left wing enough for her, right? Um, and uh, you know, and she was very much of the kind of Tony Benn view, you know, Ma- Michael Foote's election manifesto. The problem, the problem, you know, the, the greatest, the, the longest suicide note in political history. Um, well, Tony Benn said um, the problem was that it actually wasn't socialist enough, mm. <laughs> right? Um, and um, that's my mum's view of the world. So I kind of, as a, as a, you know, I'd grown up in, in kind of Glasgow, um, really in the kind of, uh, actually outside Glasgow, East Kilbride, but no one's ever heard of East Kilbride, so I say Glasgow. Um, it's, uh, it was during the miners' strike. Yeah, I, I remember it vividly. I remember kids in my class who were affected by it. Um, I remember um, families in my school affected by it. I remember seeing the kind of trucks of all the um, the coal and the miners and stuff like that, um, and the scabs and the, the whole kind of thing. It was a crazy time, and uh, you know, I, I was I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew that something was going on. And um, every day I heard about what an evil woman Thatcher was um, because she was destroying communities and and um, uh, destroying the economy and destroying the industrial base and she only cared about the rich and you know and this was very much my mom's narrative who my mom also wanted to really take me to the Soviet Union um, and this was her kind of idea of Nirvana right this would be the kind of holiday of a lifetime <laughs> we'd, go, we'd go to Moscow and then we'd see how, how people lived 
Um, so I kind of grew up with this worldview, right, which was that property is theft and profit is um, is evil. Very, very, very socialist. And um, I guess when I got to kind of 16 or 17, I started kind of, actually maybe 18, maybe a bit, bit older than that, I kind of stumbled into an economics class um, and um, kind of by accident. And he drew a demand and supply chart. And to this day, it was the, the, the most insightful economics class I've ever been in. Um, but he kind of explained how price, price, prices are formed at the intersection of demand and supply. And he kind of, you know, just gave this, for, for me anyway, it was a kind of masterclass in how markets function and what a price actually is. And all of a sudden, it just became, it was, okay, this is actually how it works, right? You know, and so it starts out, say, well, if you, if you, you know, suppose you wanted to build this, utopian society you know you got to know the engineering you got to know how the economy works so that you can engineer this this socialist utopia and then obviously as you start so that got me interested in economics and then as as i started to kind of try and figure out the best way to build a socialist utopia i realized that it was uh, it wasn't possible um and i realized it was all a bit of um a bit of a sham and um and then i kind of and that was that was the start of it really it was it was really a love of economics initially um, that, that, that kind of tangentially led me into finance. And at what at what point in your career did you did you start working for Sockgen? Because I think that's probably where a lot of the people that know you will probably know associate you with the with the Sockgen team of Albert Edwards and James Montier. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I mean that wasn't until I think it was two thousand and nine. Uh, so it was over ten years ago now. So I mean, by that stage, I uh, I know Albert and uh, and James and and Andy Lapthorn and um uh, you know a, a bunch of guys in the um uh, uh who you know so a bunch of really interesting guys. We were really really lucky um uh, to start off a career at uh, Dresna. Um, Dresna Klein, it was actually Clyde Benson, mm. um and uh, and I got a job as an economist, um which is all I kind of really wanted to do was economic research. My kind of dream was to do a PhD in, in, in economics. I was at the LSE and everyone was applying to, to banks. And I kind of thought, well, you know, I suppose I should apply to a bank as well, having absolutely no idea what they were. It's just that there seemed to be a lot of money there. So I kind of ended up locking out with this job as an economist and um, landed in the same department as, as James. In fact, James was one of the guys that hired me um, and uh, Albert Edwards as well. Um, and, um, and, you know, I said a bunch of other really interesting guys. That's where kind of where I started out. It was during the tech bubble. It was the late 90s. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult episode to explain to people because when people think about it now and hear about it now and read about it now, it's so obvious that the tech bubble was just was lunacy. It was a mania. It was total madness. You know, you had like, you know, non-business models trading at, you know, $5 billion market caps. You know, washmydog.com, mm. um, you know, see, you know, things that literally ran out of, you know, would raise like a couple of billion dollars in the market and literally burn through it in a year. Um, because everyone believed, absolutely everyone believed in um in this this craziness. And uh, you know, it, it was including a lot of my friends, uh, a lot of people I knew. Um, and so it was a very strange experience to land in the only department in, seemingly in, on the planet who thought it was all a complete fiasco because um, obviously it was Albert Edwards and he was various. So he was saying that it was it was all kind of crazy. So uh, my kind of formative experience in the city really was was, was being taken around um, all these kind of 
meetings with institutional investors who's, who were, you know, I'm not exaggerating too much to say that they were kind of lining up in a queue to, to, to throw things at him. You know, they, they hated him. They hated him because he was telling them that, that, that tech was, was a bubble. And they was just they, they, they hated hearing that this this clown didn't understand that this was the new world and the internet was everything and you know that you, you just, just didn't get it. And um, you know, you know, we, we all know the history, but it's really difficult to kind of convey to people just how mad the world went. I think there's two things that I would interject there. One is that there's uh, there are certain things that no amount of book learning can prepare you for, and one of them is being in the in the teeth of a raging bull market like the sort of the, the dot-com boom you know you can read about it but that won't that won't be any a replacement for actually experiencing it firsthand and the other one is and i'm indebted to a, a, near, a former near neighbor of mine a, a guy who i think we had a, we had on the podcast a, probably a year or more ago now chris dillo is his name by the way the the economist for the investors chronicle and he introduced me to the the book and the principle of groupthink and the thing about the city for those who haven't had the experience of working in it is that groupthink is probably one of the most dangerous things you can uh, fall victim to. What's his name? Chris Dillo, and he may may, may be one of the only Marxist economists out there at the moment. <laughs> A Marxist economist, my God, uh, he still exists. Uh, no, and working for the Investors Chronicle, no less. Wow, he sounds great. He is, he's, he's good. And he also has a superb blog called Stumbling and Mumbling, which I'd commend to anybody. <laughs> I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, should, I, should I send his writings to my mother? Uh, I, think she'd, I think she'd love him. I think she'd love him to bits. Right. Oh, great. I'm going to connect them. But yeah, because when you talk about you know the, the sort of city folk, because I, I remember you know I was working as a sort of private client fund manager at uh, Merrill Lynch at the time. And just be just having kind of like front row seats to the first dot-com boom was probably the headiest experience of my professional life. It was, um, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. It was absolutely, you know, it was, it was, um, it was a very defining kind of um, time for me, I have to say. I actually was, was kind of um, uh, lucky enough to be reading uh, the Charles Kindleberger book, mainly as panics and crashes. And again, this this doesn't sound like much now because with hindsight, it seems so obvious that it was a bubble. But right now, right then, the whole world was just in the grip of this mania. And I was reading my Kindleberger and I remember going into the office and, I, and I'd been reading it on the tube in and I slapped it down on the desk and I said, and I, I remember um, um, uh, kind of thumping it with my finger and I was saying, this is it. It's all in here. What's happening right now is all in here. Albert's right. This is all just a huge fucking bubble. Um, and um, that was just a very, very controversial thing for me to do at the time. Um, because even in, at, at Climb Wars, Albert was clearly bearish and Albert thought it was all a bubble. But a lot of people in the office didn't. And certainly the whole trading floor didn't. So even with at Climb it was very much the minority, you know, contrarian view. So for me to kind of go in and, and make a big point of saying no, no, I was absolutely right. Was kind of was it was a very kind of big kind of statement at the time. But it was all in Kindleberger. And when you say you can't learn from books, and by the way, you're totally right. Um, you know, it is experience that, that that teaches you these things. There's nothing like stumbling across a book that just suddenly switches the light on when you're living through it. And that was that was Kindleberger for me. Uh, I, you know, I, this is the the thing about being bearish and and and. and you know, Andy Lapton always used to complain that there was, there was just no point being bearish, you know, as a kind of, you know, 
um, the, you don't get paid for it when you're bearish because no one wants to hear from you on the way up. And then on the way down, when, you, when you're right, there's no money to pay you for being right. So, um, you know, there's, there's kind of no point to it, really. Um, but I actually, you know, I didn't really make any kind of profit out of the kind of tech bubble when it, when it, when it burst, or, or actually the whole episode, not really. Um, but I recognized it all, you know, 15 years later when it was the, um, uh, the crypto bubble. We were living in Zug at the time, um, and my wife did one of the first ICOs um, in, um, in Switzerland. I think it was the third, second or third ICO in Switzerland. Um, so we had front row seats to that, and that was a very strange, weird, and wonderful replay of the of the tech bubble. And I actually, because I had my roadmap, because I'd been through the original tech bubble, and um, so that kind of worked out a little bit more kind of um, profitably. Um, but that was, I mean, that was a great episode as well. I was just thinking back to what you were saying earlier about um, GDP and how the current level of bond prices reflects the level of GDP at the moment. But that only explains it after the, this current episode. Um, it didn't explain bond prices beforehand. What what were you what would you attribute high bond prices prior to this crisis? Uh, you know, I kind of quote economic theory when it suits me. Um, and yeah. I don't, you know, yeah, we've, we're all on the same page with our kind of disdain for for, for, for macroeconomic theory. Um, but um, there is, I think theoretically, there is, um, uh, I remember, I can't remember exactly, but I remember kind of solving some model when I was at the LSE. And the, the economy's growth rate should roughly equal its, um, its rate of interest, the rate of interest on capital. Um, and um, when I kind of looked at the the, the long run history of, um, of of bond yields with GDP, and I did this across a whole bunch of countries, um, and what I you know I I used to have data going back to like you know centuries, um, and um, it, it does what, what I found was that the the relationship between bond yields and GDP and, and GDP, so nominal bond yields, nominal GDP growth. Um, it, it, it was just incredibly tight over a long period of time, right? So the correlation, you know, was something like 0.8 or 0.9 um, uh, over a long, long period, over you know, like decades uh, and, and even centuries. Uh, and what you would find is that you know the, the average growth rate, um, or the growth rate for any particular year didn't necessarily you know, match or even come close to the, the, the bond yield of that year. But if you take a 10-year average nominal growth rate, 10-year um, bond yield, you kind of get something that's not that, you know, far apart. And then if you do that each decade, what you find is that the two things actually seem to sync very, very closely. And then if you do that across different economies, you get the same kind of result. So there seems to be something in there, right? There is a kind of loose... Um, but very real kind of relationship uh, between them. Um, uh, so that's so that's the, the, there is some theory. I think intuitively it kind of makes sense that you know the, the rate of interest kind of should be eventually it should tend towards you know for, for, the, for the average rate of interest across an economy it should kind of roughly tend towards the however that economy is growing. So I, I think that kind of intuitively feels about right to me. Empirically, it's about right. Um, but interestingly, the one place where it starts to really break down is 2000 and um, uh, around about kind of 2013, 14, 15-ish, that kind of period, and whether it's in Germany or Japan or in the US. And what you find is that 
Nominal GDP really kind of bounces back, um, but bond yields don't, right? And that, I think, is the first time, the first indication you get that QE is, is kind of permanent, right? Have you, uh, to change Tacker just a little, have you seen um, the latest presentation by Warren Buffett, the, which I think was recorded over the weekend, uh, the presentation to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway? Have I haven't seen that? actually, no. You might, you might find it in, intriguing viewing. I, I haven't seen all of it yet. I've seen the, I've seen the first hour, and this, it's a four-hour presentation by Buffett. So, uh, and I don't, don't even know if he refreshes his, his, his glass of Coca-Cola. Um, but it, it's it's a it's a sterling effort, and without giving the game away, uh, I mean it's probably best if you see it before I comment. But without giving the game away, he goes on. He starts at least at great length referring to the U.S. Civil War, the American Civil War, and the environment of the Great Depression. And what I took from that is, although although it's somewhat writ is somewhat expressed in in sort of Buffett code, reading between the lines. I got the distinct impression that he does not view this as a normal cyclical correction, but something far, far worse. Well, in terms of the, um, the, the, the Corona thing? Yes. Yeah. Well, not, not so much the Corona thing, but the government's response to the Corona government's thing. Doing it. Yeah, I mean, listen, so what was actually... So, you know, let me kind of just finish up on the point I was making. So sure. you actually, I, I did actually do this, in, you know, uh, last year... Um, and you can see very clearly if you pull up a, pull up a, a chart of, um, of of government bond yields, say treasuries with nominal GDP growth, you know, for like thirty or forty years, and you will find that they kind of move quite closely, you know, over a long period. It very very visibly breaks down about two thousand thirteen, and what happens is nominal GDP really shoots up, and nominal bond yields kind of don't. Right, they start going up, they start adjusting, they start moving with nominal GDP growth, and then they just stay flat or come down a bit. Well, nominal GDP growth goes to the kind of four to five percent, which means that that's where bond yields should have went to. But no, bond yields stay about two, two-ish, right? Until very recently. Why? That was a taper tantrum, right? The 2013 taper tantrum. If you remember when bond when, when Brian Bernanke tried to say, okay, you know, the party's over, we're now going to kind of um a dial back all this monetary intervention. Um, and um, the bond market kind of panicked and cracked out um, and financial markets wobbled. And of course, the Fed hate anything like a wobble in financial markets. They think it's their job that there's never a wobble. So they kind of rode back on it. Ben Bernanke rode back on it. And um, they kept, they, they, they kept um, uh, bond yields at, um, at that kind of 2% rate, even when nominal GDP was in the kind of, you know, 4 to 5% range. So bond yields were... You know, you know, depending on exactly what you look at, I think it's probably fair to say that bond yields are probably 200 basis points at least lower than where they should be, right? Um, and so that what that means is that if you if everything is priced off those bond yields, then everything else is hugely overvalued, right? So you know, if bond yields are 20, uh, the 200 basis points lower than where they should be, then that probably means that bond prices are somewhere, you know. 15 to 20% overvalued. If the equity yield is, you know, kind of, you know, you've got a kind of 3% equity yield, it should be a 5% equity yield, then, you know, you've probably got um, equity markets about 40% overvalued relative to where they should be. So this is quite a new thing, right? So subject to what I was saying earlier, you know, I, I think I said earlier at the beginning, you guys picked me up on it, I picked up on it. You said, when I said, you know, if the bubble is in the bond market, bond yields are low because, normal GDP is low, and this is true, 
But now bond yields are much lower than they should be given nominal GDP. And so I think that we, over the last few years, we are, act we are actually seeing, you know, to your earlier point, we are seeing some um, uh, inflation in those asset prices. And I think that, so I, I, I think that kind of the, the vulnerability in markets that we see here is something that um, is definitely kind of a, a, a concern to me. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I kind of, I think, yeah, this is kind of weird. This is an unusual time. Market structure is, is, is you know, not, not normal, not right. Um, and I think this response is, is, is not normal and not right. Agreed. In what way would you say um, it's not right? Would you do you think that there's too much stimulus out there and the market should just find its way? Or um, and going back to what we said earlier about our analysis, it, it, whether it's right or not, we're just aren't we just trying to work out where the market's going to go next? So let's say we say it's not right, but it's a bullish outcome. Shouldn't we just follow the bullish outcome? Yes, you're right. You know. Making these kind of judgments on, you know, what should or should be done, what's right and wrong, you're, yeah, I accept that. You know, I think you're, what you're saying is, well, you know, so what? You yeah, know, I a, mean, I, job, I, yeah. I've, fallen, I've fallen victim to that, of thinking, you know, the markets are overvalued, they're gamed higher, and got annoyed about it. And it's, in some ways, the, what's happened in the crisis has been a kind of, in, in some ways, a validation of the, you, you, you've got to be careful about taking on too much debt because you never really know when you're going to be squeezed. And, okay, the government's come in to help out certain companies, but, it, you know, Wall Street companies borrowing money to push their share price higher because it helps their, their stock options and things like that is not is not how I think free markets should work. But if they're allowed to do it, they're going to keep doing it. And in the end, it's exactly what you were saying about Albert Edwards. If you keep saying the market goes down, you know, if the market's set or game to go higher, then you're going to be fighting against a much bigger, longer-term trend. So it's um, it can cloud your judgment. And in the end, that's, I guess, why I use charts, because regardless of what I think the market should do, I try to at least follow what the market is doing. But what I'm, what I'm getting to here is how do we, how do we take this information that maybe the government are doing the wrong thing? Do we, do we complain about it or do we think that this will create perhaps a bigger problem further down the line? And if it does, how quickly could this, this be brought forward? Yeah, no, so that's, you know, I wasn't, you're absolutely right. I think that's an excellent question. Um, I, I, and um, let, let me roll back a little bit. I think that you know the, the, the best test of um, you know um, an investment opinion, let's call it that, um, an investable opinion, is uh, is this: ask yourself what you do differently now that you have this information. What do you do differently? And suppose you know you know I, I don't know. I for example, I said it's not right. Or, I don't like this kind of bailout of um, of the airliners, for example, um, uh, to give you, you know, just to kind of pluck one out of the sky. Um, I, I, it doesn't kind of feel right to me. Um, it doesn't feel right the way that it's been done. Um, I think I, I think the, the 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 amount of capital that's been provided to, for example, Delta. Uh, I think from memory, and I looked at this at the time. So the numbers might might be wrong. Um, but let's say they've actually injected something like 
um, 30 up to 40 percent of, of Delta's Delta Airlines capital, right, with them um, with these grants and cheap loans, right. In exchange for that, they're getting um, uh, they're getting uh, warrants on the stock, which if they convert, will be something like one percent of of the of the of equity. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and it's, so it doesn't feel yeah. So I I don't like it. So let's say we all agree um, with the, that this is wrong and, and, and it's the storing up problems for later. Then you put your investor hat on and say, okay, what do we do differently? Well, how do we manage our portfolio differently? Right? What do we what do we what what do we own that we didn't own before? You know, and what what shouldn't we own that we did own before? And I think it, you know the answer is well, I don't know really. Right? I don't know I don't know what to do with that information as as an investor. Um, so I, I, which I think is the point you're making, right? Um, it might all be very interesting to kind of discuss the rights and wrongs and the, the shoots and shouldn'ts, but you know, as investors, what, what, what do we actually do differently here? Yeah, should we should we buy Delta shares? I mean, it's like if they're being supported in this way. Well, so, Warren, and, and, Warren Warren Buffett hasn't because he just sold every airline stock he owned. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, I was gonna I was gonna come to that actually, Tim. So that's that's interesting that you say that. Um, um, so if he's if he's got out and if he's and if he's actually taking a slightly negative tact on what the government's doing that's a sea change i mean that this is, is why this, this is this is exactly why i raised the point because a the the, the two things that, that came out of that landing cliff for me were firstly a that he's taken this you know big stance on airlines which is rather than seek some sort of support which he might have done i mean which he did do in the in the height of the financial crisis which is you know he benefited you know massively from what a cynic michael sweetheart deals with you know the u.s government or the fed in relation to some of the financial companies that he was invested in this time around he's just saying well i'm off and i think that that lack of engagement with the market is extremely telling the other thing i think is extremely telling is again i people should see the presentation for themselves rather than hear it sort of third hand from me um but i got the distinct impression that he is uh let's say completely unenamored of the market at the moment and the fact that berkshire's got whatever it has $150 $150 billion in uninvested cash speaks absolute volumes. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I um, I mean, I, I I think any, or to me anyway, I should say, um, I think any investor really, um, as part of their education, should read everything that Warren Buffett has ever written. Mm. And 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 Charlie and Charlie Munger and Charlie Munger yeah. and when they've done that they should they should do it again um, and they should make a point of doing doing it regularly um, and I think that once you've done that reading the Snowball by Alice Schroeder is just a I think it's a brilliant biography in its own right um, but it's a brilliant biography of Warren Buffett the man and not just the investor so the Lowenstein biography is about Warren Buffett the, the investor. The capitalist, um, the Alice Roder is about Warren Buffett, the man, and it's brilliant, brilliant biography. And you know, I, I really, you know, if you haven't read that, go and read it. Um, but yeah, so with it, you know, Warren Buffett, I think, has been the teacher to so many investors, um, and and I think that that's right because I think he's a he is a brilliant man, um, as is as is Munger. Um, but uh, you know, every you know, was, I'm I'm trying to remember the the quote from. Um, uh, train spotting <laughs> or national film. 
you know, when, I don't know if you remember when um, when Sick Boy and uh, and Renton are kind of trying to shoot um, uh, their air gun at, at that guy's. That, there's some bruiser in a park, and he's got the big vicious dog. And they do, one of them does a one of them does a Sean Connery impression. And he, that's when they do the Sean. And the, what yeah. they're saying is, you know, Sean Connery, uh, David Bowie, I think Kenny Dalglish, and he goes through this list. Um, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop. He goes through this list, saying, you know, one day you've got it, and then the next day you haven't. <laughs> so, so, so basically, the point read is that, that that we're all fucked in the end, or something like that. And um, and and it's true, you know. One day these kind of superstars have got it, and the next day they haven't. And I think Warren Buffett, you know, God bless him. I, I'm not sure I pay as much attention to today's Warren Buffett as as the 30 years ago um, uh, Warren Buffett, right? And you know, and and that's not to say that um, uh, you know I don't have enormous respect for him, but I'm, I'm, frankly, I don't. I just don't pay as much attention. I don't think this is interesting. I don't. I haven't. I don't recall the last time I listened to him and thought, wow. That's a brilliant insight, right? Where you know, I, 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 I just, I just don't remember. Uh, likewise with Charlie Munger, uh, because that's the natural process. That's the natural way things progress. You get, you get old enough, and you just not got it anymore, right? And I think that's where they are. Um, in terms of these kind of um, views on the airliners, but I, I don't know anything about airliners, you know, and I don't, you know, I, I don't have a kind of strong view. But he was making very similar noises about um, uh, the, rate, the ratings agencies after the um, financial crisis, right? He owned, um, um, he owned, I think, both of those businesses. He certainly owned Moody's. Um, he might have owned S and P as well. And if you remember, those guys had their fingerprints all over the um, at the subprime crash, mm. right? Those guys were arguably the single most culpable. Um, a party and uh, what was a very messy affair with all sorts of um, uh, bad players. Um, the rating agencies really came out of that smelling of shit. And I think that there was a really, um, it was a very reasonable view to take that these guys' business model is bust. No one is going to listen to these guys again. They're never going to be able to charge the premiums for, for ratings. You know, the, the business model's over. And one of the people who believed that was Warren Buffett and he sold it. And he, he'd been an owner of that stock for decades. Uh, and you know, five years later, it's making up new new highs. And not, I think, recently it's been outperforming the um, uh, the market because it's one of these quality stocks, right? So, um, again, I don't know much about airliners, but just because Warren Buffett says he doesn't like airliners doesn't tell me that therefore he's you know he's he's he's, he's right. Sure. So, so I hear exactly what you're saying, but I'll give us a third party take on this. So, Stephen Wilkinson, who's one of the best guests we've had on the show basically gave the, gave the following take, because he, he, he did see the presentation as well. And this is, so I'm quoting Stephen now. One, Buffett thinks we're in for a generational bear market. Two, he is preparing to change the habit of a lifetime and let marginal businesses sink. This is a massive shift for him, as it stands in marked contrast to pretty much everything he's talked about Berkshire's ownership ethic over the four, past four decades. I don't at all disagree with him, but it's a sign that he's both expecting businesses in the portfolio to fail and need restructuring and that he's not going to be wasting capital on propping up failing businesses. Three, he expects to be the big winner as private equity companies start to fail and become distressed sellers of highly leveraged assets. I felt, and this again, this is Stephen's words, I felt that this was the most enthralling Berkshire show for years, and frankly, I've been quite bored with the homilies floating out of Omaha at the beginning of May for the last decade, as this was, as this was a businessman speaking, not a friendly avuncular stock picker with a nice turn of phrase. Always fun watching the world's greatest capitalist at work. Right. So that does. So that is a that's a very very good summary. So maybe I kind of go back and and, and um, listen. So in other words, I think basically he's in as much as he changed his spots 
during his career, he's changed them again, right? Just now. Yeah. No, listen. I think that's that's that is very interesting. I think um, you know, the, you know, Ryan Ayer was saying recently that in terms of marginal business going bust, um, Ryan Ayer was saying that um, they need to sell that middle seat, right? Mm-hmm. Ryan Ayer probably more than anyone. All these budget barriers yeah. they cram everyone onto you know any of these tiny little cylinders. Um, and they basically, you know, as bums on seats, they need to get sell as many tickets as they possibly can. They need to get as many people as they possibly can into into those cylinders. Uh, you know, now you probably wouldn't really want to be kind of, you know, um, uh, scrunched up, you know, with 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 um, kind of, um, you know, the way the way you do and these kind of um, uh, budget carriers at the best of times. But I think with this, is that you know, is that where you're going to go? Are you going to are you going to get an Orionair? Um, uh, fly, you're going to get an easy jet, jet fly. Are you going to be completely rammed in with a bunch of strangers? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not so sure because because if enough people say actually no, I don't think so. Then it's not like they're going to make it cheaper and cut their prices. These guys are in trouble. Um, so I, I then it, it comes back to the, the kind of driver of this. Um, you know, is is this a permanent change? Right? Do we actually? stop going to restaurants? Do we stop going to football matches? Do we stop going to, um, do we stop traveling as much? And um, the answer to all those questions is, I, I don't really know. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, memories are, memories are short. You know, we were talking earlier about um, and the, the tech bubble and the only way to really kind of understand the bubble is to live through one. It doesn't matter how much you read, you have to live through it. And the reason for that is because people forget. It only takes a couple of years for people to forget. When Russia defaulted in the late 90s, I remember reading in the, on my way into work, um, I, I, I'd just come back from holiday, they just defaulted, they surprised everyone. I read uh, on the back page of the Financial Times, the head of, I think, Ian uh, Origination at Merrill Lynch, saying Russia will be locked out of the, the, um, the um, capital markets for a generation. Yeah, yeah. Right? And a couple of years, it had all been forgotten, right? And by the way, a few years after that, they were, they were the R and bricks. So, you know, I kind of, I just, I, 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 I listened to Howard Marks. I listened to um, um, uh, Sam um, as well. Um, uh, you know, listen to what you're saying about Buffett. There's a very clear message. The world is not going to go back to normal. Marginal yeah. business is in trouble. And I think that I, I understand that. But I, again, I, 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 it doesn't mean they're right. And I do know that people have a short memory and I do know that people adapt. Um, now, do we get a generational bear market? I'm very nervous on everything that's worked over the last 40 years, whether it's public equity, private equity, venture, credit, government bonds, all of these things that have worked over the last 40 years, they've all worked because government bond yields have, have continued to fall lower. Every year, basically, they've been lower than they were the year earlier. Um, that's over, right? Regardless of your view on inflation, regardless of the predictability of inflation, bond yields are not going lower from here. They're either going flat or they're going up. Right. And um, therefore, this duration tailwind is going to become likely a duration headwind. Mm. And all of the stuff that I think has worked over the last 40 years is not going to work in the next 40 years. So I do agree that you have to think differently about how to allocate, how to invest in this market and this world. And I do think that we're moving into a new chapter. We're moving into a new period of financial history. And maybe maybe it's the coronavirus that kind of um, uh, the, the, the tips that, you know. Um, I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm still not convinced that any, you know, people like going to the pub. People like going to football matches. Um, my guess is actually things will be back to normal pretty much um, uh, by the end of the year. 
In terms of, I mean, you, you mentioned, say, investor behavior and it being, you know, memories being quite short. Without putting you on the spot for, let's say, individual investments, what, in terms of, let's say, a bullish theme and a, a bearish theme, what, what, what for those, what for, for you would be those themes? What, what would you be bullish right now and, and very, very bearish about? Um, bullish right now. Um, if anything. Um, I'm certainly very bullish of, um, uh, well, there's a couple. Of, there's, there's a couple of things that I think are, are, are very interesting. I think that in um, um, in the commodity market, uranium is, is starting to move. I think this has been in a bear market for um, for over ten years now. Um, maybe I think the peak price was about I think it was 2008 from memory. Um, but you certainly have been a, a bear market um, for for over a decade. It's been a vicious bear market. Um, equity values have collapsed. I think the uranium, um, the the equity value. Of, Uranium miners internationally was about 150 billion uh, 10 years ago. It's now something like 20 billion. Um, spot price of uranium was about 160 dollars a pound. It's now 35, 35 dollars a pound, and that's after a rally this year. Um, uh, so you've seen huge supply contraction. You've seen capacity reduction, um, and the and you've seen a narrative which has driven that. And the narrative is. After Fukushima, nobody wants to go near near, near nuclear power. Um, but the um, the narrative, I think, is wrong. There's actually a huge pipeline of power, nuclear power plants being built. I think in this world of kind of zero um, of, of of awareness about the the um, uh, the climate and and, and the um, the um, the desire to decarbonize climate, the only logical solution really is nuclear. And um, so I, I think that the narrative is wrong. You've got a huge structure. You've had a huge structural bear market um, um, uh, playing out, uh, and I, I think that you've actually seen that turn. Um, and I think that coronavirus has been one of the things that turned it, ironically enough, because lots of mines have been shut down, but the utilities are still demanding about the same amount of uranium. So you've had a huge supply shock. Without you know, unlike oil, you've had a supply shock and a demand shock. Um, you've had a supply reduction with the demand shock. Uranium, you've had the supply reduction with no demand reduction. So. Mm. Prices have actually gone up quite a lot. They've gone from like 25, 20, 25 at the beginning of the year to about 35 now. But you're still way below, way below the 160 that you had kind of, you know, over 10 years ago. So I think that there's, um, I think that we have a, a structural bull market brewing in, in, in uranium. And um, I think that that's a very interesting market. I think that in, in equities, one of the things that has really played out over the last 10 years has been this kind of re-rating of quality. And, um, you know, and I know a lot of the value guys hate it because, you know, it's, they've been on the wrong side of it, frankly. Um, and, it, you know, and there's a very kind of impassioned discussion about, you know, what value is and what it isn't and whether the quality guys are all idiots or, you know, whether the value guys are. And, you know, and, and that's kind of interesting. But I think what's undeniable is there has been a re-rating. Um, the MSCI quality index was about, you know, p- trailing PE ratio, I'm going to say about 15 times uh, 10 years ago. It's now 22. I mean, right now, 22. So after the um, the, the, the corona um, uh, kind of panic. Um, so you've had this, you know, I mean, was that 15 to 22, about 30% re-rating. So whatever the returns you've made, whatever you think of quality investing, um, it's unlikely that you're going to do as well in the next 10 years as you did in the last 10 years because your, your starting multiple is much higher. So um, whatever you think of it, it's difficult to argue that quality is, is as attractive as an investment um, idea as it was 10 years ago. But where you can get incredibly cheap quality is in the frontier markets. 
Um, you know, the emerging markets didn't really participate in the bull market um, over the last 10 years, in the equity bull market over the last 10 years. They kind of flatlined. Um, frontier markets derated. Frontier markets went from a PE ratio of about 17, 18, five or six years ago to like 10, right? MSCI frontier market is in a PE of 10. Um, uh, you know, for reasons I think we could probably all hazard a guess at and all understand. But, you know, babies get thrown out of bathwater. And there's some really interesting, very high quality businesses like consumer staples, um, breweries, um, confectionery, um, cigarettes, which are trading on, you know, 14, 15 times earnings with high single digit, you know, US dollar um, earnings growth. I mean, it's, it's difficult to look at something like that and think, you know, probably, I can probably reasonably safely make, you know, a 15 to 20% return compounding over the next 10 or 20 years, right? That becomes a very big number. And you can see those kind of things in the frontier markets here. So um, I, I, I'm quite bullish on, on some of those areas as well. Why, why would you expect them to perform well now if they weren't, if they weren't necessarily out or performing well before when global the global market was in a much better condition yeah no i think um, excellent question i i, I think um you've had um uh, I, I see two things there was an awful lot of money the frontier markets are quite small and illiquid right and um, so they tend to be swung around a lot by the liquidity flows of the of you know the, the pension funds and the endowment funds, and they were very very hot five years ago. So there's an awful, there's a huge inflow. Their their valuation in terms of PE ratios, the valuation of the MSCI Frontier was kind of similar to um, almost almost the same as the MSCI World. So there was basically no discount, no risk premium for owning Frontier versus Dell. So five. Actually, seven years ago, this is 2013, 2014, frontier markets are totally overvalued, right? So that's now unwound, and it's now gone into a period that they've gone from being overvalued to being undervalued, and that process has taken about seven years. Um, and that, you know, that, that, that's fine, that kind of happens. I think that, um, um, so that's the first part of the question. These things tend to mean revert, and I would kind of expect some kind of mean reversion going forwards. The second part of the question is, you know, we're talking about the individual markets here, right? When we're talking about the the the, the, the liquidity flaws and the, the undervaluation and the market wide um, valuation versus the developed markets, um, the investment opportunity is not the market. The investment opportunity are individual stocks, mm-hmm. and some of those individual very high quality stocks. For example, um, you know, the the, the one of the um, stocks that we, we actually kind of um, did some work on a, a few months ago was in, um, it was the the uh, uh, the, the tobacco um, uh, monopoly in, in Bangladesh, um, which is majority owned by BAT, British American Tobacco, right? So I think from memory, it's seventy percent owned by British American Tobacco, maybe eighty percent. Um, um, but you know, if you look at your kind of you know your stock market history, you look at the 20th century stock market returns, and even up to 2020, you know the best performing sector, you know, and I think this is true in every market is tobacco, it's cigarettes, right? The kind of compound return of 21 percent, right? Absolutely spectacular. Um, you know, you you can become if you if you're rich. You can become incredibly rich if you own something that's compounding at twenty percent a year for like twenty five years, right? You become phenomenally rich. Oh yeah, it's a, that's a huge that's a huge number in a normal market, but in in this market of low interest rates, it's absolutely no, so not, yeah, so, astronomical. So, 
Yeah, well, but if you, you know, you, you kind of do do the numbers. Um, it's it, even if you're not rich, if you put if you can compound your money at twenty percent for twenty five years right now with a small amount of savings, it will become a meaningful amount of savings, a life changing amount of savings in twenty five years. Right, and the thing is, when you look at that stock market history, and you look at tobacco companies, and you, see, you know, because tobacco cigarettes are the ultimate business, right? A very small ticket, very very affordable, completely addictive, um, massive massive pricing power, um, recession proof, depression proof, pretty much everything proof. Um, you know, they even get used as currency in kind of extreme environments. Um, so I think you know, cigarette. Production has to be, you know, the gold standard when it comes to business. You know, there is a kind of problem that they kill the customers, but we'll kind of leave that to one side for now. Uh, but you look at the stock market history and you think, oh my God, wouldn't it have been great to have invested in like some, you know, cigarette companies, you know, in the sixties or the seventies? I wish it, I wish I'd been able to do that. Well, in the frontier markets, you still can, right? It's still there. Um, you know, there's a bunch of them. We, we talked to the Bangladeshi one, but there's, you know, there's a bunch, bunch of them in, you know, in Indonesia, across Africa. Um, I, I think that, you know. Now is the time to pick those up, and I don't mean trade them for a year or two, to your point about markets. I mean, own these and own them for a long time and just, you know, watch your wealth compound, in a, you know, in a way that we've seen play out, you know, in a, you know, in umpteen markets um, uh, up until now. Um, so, so, you know, that, that, that would be my kind of long-winded, another long-winded answer to your question there, Paul. Obviously, in the 60s and 70s, there was nothing to tell people that they shouldn't be smoking. In fact, it was probably encouraged with more and more advertising. But but the world's changed now. I think people don't people know that smoking's bad for you? And the governments have got to seem to have, not got to, but seem to have a remit to keep their, you know, their, their, their people informed of health concerns. Sure, so, but... Uh, the, 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 what we learned when we went through that process and developed markets, which really started in the 80s um, with um, uh, uh, warnings on the packs and then became an advertising ban and then became a ban on smoking in public places. Uh, what we found, and, and eventually saw a decline in cigarette consumption, mm. um, what we found, and, and, and also increasingly um, uh, uh, higher taxes, what we found was that the tobacco companies were not only able to protect their margins, they were able to expand their margins so that their profit per stick went up. And so until very recently, um, the tobacco companies' profit, they were still growth businesses until probably about 10 years ago. They probably flatlined about 10 years ago. But that's well into these kind of, um, um, kind of this health awareness issue that that you've been talking about. So, and this is one of the reasons why they were very interesting, right? And this is where this is where Neil Woodford made all his money, right? Because he had he basically was phenomenally long on tobacco stocks. Why was he long on tobacco stocks? Nobody wanted them because the narrative in the nineties um, and the eighties and the noughties, the narrative was nobody's smoking anymore, right? The governments have, the governments have had enough of this, right? The governments are encouraging people to stop smoking. They're penalising. Smokers, they're increasingly um, making um, smokers feel like um, society's black sheep. Um, so, you know, tobacco companies are selling. And this, here's a very, very in- interesting example of um, where the narrative is so obvious. And this, this is going back to Buffett and Howard Mark, what we were talking about earlier in terms of the um, corona. It's one of those examples of tobacco um, and stock market performance is a great example of an overwhelmingly compelling, plausible, logical, believable narrative, which everyone agreed with 
to the point at which there was almost no point in even debating it, right? And it was wrong, <laughs> right? And Woodford was on the other side of that with tobacco, and he made a lot of money out of it. And what he said afterwards was um, his one mistake was that he didn't own more tobacco. Um, uh, so, you know, I, 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 I think that, um, yeah, I, 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 I would still, if I had the chance to invest in tobacco companies in the 70s or 80s, you know, I would love to do that. And I think some of these frontier market um, um, valuations right now are offering you exactly that opportunity. You made the point about uranium. I've had a quick look at the charts and they are quite interesting. So that's a, that's a very interesting call you're making there. Are there any other commodities that you find interesting, either positive or negative? No, no, not really. I mean, we own some gold. Um, you know, I, uh, I probably, you know, I think it probably is one of my, my, my biases, um, but we, we own gold. Um, you know, for, for as I said earlier, you know, I, I can be kind of agnostic on inflation and deflation, and I can be agnostic about the future. But what I'm interested in is, is building a portfolio that's robust and building a portfolio that's that's you know that doesn't matter if my narratives are, are, are completely wrong. It doesn't matter if my crystal ball sends me down the kind of wrong path. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that robustness which is interesting, and I think you know, gold is robust. You know, gold has a role in the portfolio because just because of its robustness, because of its kind of future proofness, um, and because of its kind of complete simplicity. You know, it doesn't do anything; it just sits there, <laughs> um, and uh, and it doesn't decay, and it doesn't corrode, and it doesn't produce anything. And you know, it's just very simple. And there are times when that simplicity is um, um, incredibly attractive. Of course, I also live in Switzerland, where it's quite liquid. Um, uh, but yeah, so uh, in terms of commodities, if, if, if that counts as a commodity, then I'd be quite bullish of gold. Do you have, so you've talked about the frontier markets, do you have any interest in, in the core markets or do you just think they're potentially overvalued or the outlook's too uncertain for you to make a call? Someone asked me an interesting question the other day and said, of, of all the things that, that, that you hear, you know, you think would be the, the kind of, you know, the consensus ideas, which ones do you think are, 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 are wrong? And, um, and I actually think the kind of idea that, that, that I'm not going to call them fine, but tech is, um, is, is completely overvalued relative to everything else. And therefore, that's going to correct. I, I don't actually think it is. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the kind of, if I had to make a call, I think that tech is still, um, it still has a lot of runway. Um, uh, I think there's some very interesting kind of special sets. Uh, uranium is, is one. Some of the kind of frontier quality is, 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 is another. And, um, you know, there's some very interesting places to invest, which, which are non-tech, which are not tech-related. But you know, I, I think that, you know, the kind of outperformance of the NASDAQ versus, for example, the S&P, I, I think that still has legs. Um, I think that that still happens. I think that these businesses are phenomenally robust, um, phenomenally, you know, they, they have pristine balance sheets, very sticky customers, very high margins, highly cash generative. A lot of them are still, you know, run by the founders. Um, uh, these, you know, I think that the, the, these, are very, these are very high quality businesses. They're still getting growth, unlike a Nestle or a Heineken, which is also, you know, these are high quality businesses. Nestle and Heineken aren't growing anymore. You know, Google is still growing. Facebook is still growing. And despite all the crap that happened to Facebook over the last couple of years, these guys are still getting high single-digit growth on, I think, pretty reasonable cash flow valuations. So 
I think if I had to make a developed market call, it would be that there's still plenty of runway in the kind of tech out performance. Does the potential of government um, legislation, tax or anything like that worry you in that regard? Yes, it does. Um, I think you always have to be kind of alert to, to that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I think that the problem for, well, the problem for government um, uh, um so it's not necessarily a problem I, you know, I, I would be worried about. But it, it's quite difficult. I think it's quite difficult to, it's difficult to apply the old formula, right? You know, you've got, you know, when you had, um, you know, when you had Standard Oil um, and you had Rockefeller completely dominating the oil industry and the oil market, you know, creating it really and, and then dominating it and, and not relinquishing it. Then there was, you know, with hard physical assets, it was kind of straightforward to say, well, okay, we're just going to break you guys up, you know. And, when, you know, when you had the kind of, you know, when you had the Bell um, monopoly with, you know, physical assets all over the place, again, you could do the same thing. You could say, right, we're going to break you up, you know, you're, you're going to separate any baby Bells. And, and that kind of playbook, I think, kind of works I don't think it's as straightforward when it comes to tech and to code, um, especially with kind of international custom base, you know, almost non-jurisdictional. Um, I think it becomes more difficult. Um, and I think we saw the first signs of that with the, the Microsoft, with the EU fines, and they, when, they, when, when Microsoft were kind of in the crosshairs in, in the late 90s. Yeah. And really, you know, there was an awful lot of kind of, kind of um, shouting um, and posturing, but in the end, and they were absolutely, undoubtedly, um, the monopoly and operating system still are actually, although the, the nature of operating system has changed. Uh, but what happened? They got a slap on the wrists, right? And they got told to kind of divest um, uh, Explorer. They went allowed to bundle Explorer. I mean, you know, and Microsoft today is still Microsoft, right? So. Um, I think the, the first indication that the old rules for kind of, you know, breaking up monopolies maybe didn't apply in this kind of new world of tech. We saw it with um, Microsoft. And I think that these, I think Washington right now and various governments are, are wrestling with the same the same kind of thing. Would, how do we break up Google? Or would it, how, do, how does that work exactly? Um, and it's just, I think, how do we break up Facebook? It's not break into what exactly? You know, it's it's... It's just not, there's not an obvious answer. I, 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 uh, so, yeah, I am kind of worried about it. You know, it's one of the things that, I, well, I would be more worried about it if I was long the NASDAQ and show up the S&P, which, you know, or if I was long these these guys, and generally I'm not. So I don't pay quite as much attention to it. Um, but, you know, you asked for a, a view, so I gave you a view, but um, it's, not, it's, not an, it's not something that I'm actually really that much invested in. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting call. I mean, I think there's a difference between breaking something up, which I think ultimately, if, if they want to do it, they'll do it because there are different arms to say Google. I mean, you've got the, say, the email part of it and you've got their their technology side of it where they're creating all sorts of things that we, we just don't know about. And then they've got the advertising side, which is, it's all different businesses, but it's a huge company. But I'm thinking... Well, I, think all, I think it's all advertising. Well, no, I mean, it's all an advertising business. No, right? I th you know, I th no but there's, there's so many other sides to, to Google. Um than just that but but that aside what i'm 
thinking more of is that it it's one thing to have a decline of the the high street which of course is what we're seeing and everybody's buying things online and, and doing things electronically but at some point the governments are going to say we're not actually making any revenue out of these companies that no longer exist because they've not been able to so yeah. the only game in town to tax will be these big corporations so in some ways they're going to be forced to tax them because the traditional businesses are going out of business and they can't tax them. Because if you've got um, a company like Amazon that is able to provide a fantastic service, deliver a book very, very cheaply, but they they aren't paying very much in, in say, you know, business rates because they don't have a, a physical property on the high street that you have to go to and therefore their costs are much lower for many reasons, then as that that's all well and good. You've got a fantastic differentiator in terms of the consumer being able to buy something much cheaper that's delivered against actually physically walking to the shops, which is way beyond anybody's capacity anymore. Um, but at some point, that shop that was trying to exist will no longer exist. So it'll either be replaced with something or that'll be it. So the, in a time when the governments are spending more money that they haven't got at any time in possibly history. And these technology companies are sitting there, like you say, with all this money. It just seems like, you know, taking candy from a baby in some ways. And I'm not saying I want it to happen. I'm just saying it just seems like, I don't know, it just seems maybe too obvious. But, but I, you know, that that's just my fear for it. Um, technically, the markets have been very strong. And, 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 I, and I'm surprised at how fast and hard they've all bounced back and in some cases, moved into new highs. And, and uh, that that underpins, really, what you're saying, that the investors are still quite happy to to um, to pile into the meat, even at these levels. Yeah. Are you, talk, so are you talking um, the technology specifically or markets, public markets generally? No, just, well, technology has, has definitely outperformed the S&P. So at the S&P is like, uh, you know, if we, if, we, if we class, say, Netflix as including within that technology, you know, stocks like that and Amazon have, have, have moved into new highs. It's it's phenomenal. And even, even stocks like Tesla aren't far off their all-time highs, which is in itself, who's got the money to buy a, an electric car in this environment? And with oil, as we were talking about on a previous podcast, oil at, at levels where you consider keeping your petrol car and the amount that the government raises in petrol tax, it still doesn't make a lot of sense that they would be pushing us to buy electric cars anyway. And they are they are eye-wateringly expensive. So there's something behind this, the bullishness in this tech environment. It's not been a bubble that's been pricked and it's stayed low. It's been pricked and it's just bounced straight back. So that kind of plays into your argument about, you know, they're still generating a lot of money, although I don't know where Tesla's money's coming from. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I don't think Tesla is. Um, and I'm not sure Netflix either, actually. But I, I, I um, yeah, listen, I, I said, I think it's a, an, an interesting, um, it was an interesting question the guy said to me, you know, of all the kind of narratives out there, which one do you listen to and you think, I don't agree with that. I think, I think people are wrong. And I think it's a very, I think it's a very common narrative that you hear you know a very common complaint almost that you know it's not a real rally because it's only a handful of tech companies and the tech companies you know i mean it's, it's just like the nasdaq it's, a, it's another bubble um you do hear this a lot you know um uh value values underperformed um uh, versus growth um uh, for i think by, by the widest margin since 2000 
and, and and you know so I think that there's this kind of narrative that it's all just tech gone crazy and uh, as I said I, I actually think that's wrong I think it's um, it still has plenty of runway here. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that's the stunning thing that you look at the charts and again it comes down to partly comes down to a, a point about definition. What do we mean by these these things? But with these words, this language, but the the, the disparity between let's call it growth and value is more extreme now than even it was in March two thousand. Yeah, kind kind of astonishing. And uh, you know, and I, I I think the the terms are banded about too loosely. So because you can just divide the market up, say by price to book or PE ratios or whatever, and that's that's a bit of a simplistic way of doing it. But nevertheless, yeah, I'm not sure I would necessarily uh, disagree with with Dylan and bet against the likes of Google and Amazon. Yeah, mm. it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating to see, to see the dynamic. But yeah, I would I would reiterate the point about the you know, the Buffett and the Berkshire presentation because it I think the 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 the, the game has changed I and mean, it seems to have changed for for Warren Buffett himself. Yeah, that's I mean that's the that's the I guess that's the call, right? That's that's what we're all trying to figure out. Um, you know, the, what does it, so the lockdown ends, um, and and then what? <laughs> what does what does post lock? What does the post lockdown world look like? So here's here's a question for you, Dylan. If if you had been prime minister or in the cabinet uh, over the course of the last few months, what knowing now what you know or knowing what we think we know, what what if anything would you have done differently? You know, listen. I, so I, I think that knowing what we know now isn't really a fair. Um... Okay, so okay, so assuming you didn't. Okay, so assuming you didn't know any more than than anybody else, or I know. think you know, listen. I so I, I this whole experience has been a very strange one in, in so many ways for so many of us. But one of the strangest ones for me was that for, I think possibly for the first time in my life. I actually had some sympathy for for policymakers, right? I actually thought, wow, this is a tough one, right? What, what, what do you do here? Um, and uh, one of the, I mean, and, and as a, you know, as an economist, you know, and I, you know, and I hate to call myself that because, you know, as an ex-economist, one of the things you get sent... Re- reform, reformed economist. As a reformed, recovering economist, <laughs> um, one of the, yeah, as an investor, right? One of the things, you know, when you're investing, as I said, you're investing always in a, a very uncertain, unknown, unknown future, um, but you still have to make decisions. And, and a part of that decision-making is, is, is evaluating experts, right? You know, so I think you're the same, Tim, right? You allocate to managers, you try and find managers, and if you sit in front of an investor, you sit in front of a manager, and um, and he knows his portfolio, or she knows her portfolio inside out, right? And um, uh, they obviously they know much more than, than than you do about the portfolio. They know much more than you do about the companies. They know much more than you do about the management of those companies, etc., etc., etc. How, given this huge information uncertainty, this this asymmetry, how are you supposed to judge whether or not this person actually knows what they're talking about? So it's a problem that I think as an investor you face every day. And one of the things I find very, a kind of interesting, um, a useful rule of thumb for trying to separate the bullshitters from the people who are legit, your starting point is, well, how noble is the domain, right? And to try and to try and gauge how knowable the domain is, try and get a sense of what the experts are saying, 
right? So one of the things that the economy that you get with economists, and we saw this with Brexit um, um, very clearly, the experts in inverted commas completely disagreed. Totally opposite end of the spectrum. As, Naval, as Naval says, uh, it's a great quote that, that plays into that, um, all, all opinions sum to zero. And I think that's perfect. Well, if, if the, you know, well, if, if the domain, if the sum of the domain is zero, yes, right? And uh, for example, I think, I don't think there would be much, I don't think there would, there would be um, much um, controversy if I said, I've got, um, a, a, a rock in my hand and I'm going to drop it and when I let go it's going to land on the floor I don't think that there would be any controversy there right we would all agree on that because we know that right that domain is what we know but that depends right? on how you define the floor and then it depends on where in space the earth is and whether the earth has moved in time and space you can always argue another side but yes I take your point <laughs> I take your point. No, no, actually, actually, Paul, I don't, I don't think it does, right? I just said it's going to land on the floor, right? What, how, so I, didn't, I, didn't, yeah, I didn't say which precise location in space, if there even was a right? it's going to land on but, the floor. But will, it, will, but will it actually land on the floor or will it be a, uh, a, a, a slight difference because molecules can't actually touch? So how are you defining the floor? Um, <laughs> Which mean molecules can bind, right? Atoms yeah, but there's bind. a gap between them. So what's in yeah, that they gap? Bind. They're held together by like. Um. <laughs> okay, this is this is the problem when you get involved in epistemological debate. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, let me so let me go back to Tim's um, question, which yeah. what would you have done differently? And the first thing I would have done differently, I would have got all the experts in. And I would have canvassed the report. And, and, and executed them. And, and Well, I would have tried to, to, to figure out how much they collectively knew. And if they were all disagreeing, my conclusion would be collectively these guys don't know anything, right? right? Which is what you get with a bunch of economists, right? Yeah. If you were to take an even spread of economists, they would all tell you different answers. And so you collectively, as Nabal says, it sums to zero. Yeah. And the problem for policymakers, yes, you want to go with the science. Yes, you want to do what we can. But the problem we have is no one has a clue what's going on. And that was really, they really had no idea. And I actually, but they still had to kind of make decisions. They still had to, mm. um, they, you know, they, they still had to to try and um, ameliorate or make a decision on whether or not to ameliorate this, 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 this crisis. And and I think that, um, you know, in, in, in terms of the, the information that they had, uh, you know, I think that they were, they were kind of legitimate concerns that this would overload the healthcare system, that this would overload the NHS. And so, you know, they were kind of trying to, you know, we all know what they were trying to do. Um, now, did they get it right? I, who the hell knows? I, I don't know. I don't really have a kind of strong opinion. I, I, I think I think I probably would have done the same. I think I probably would have done the same thing that, that um, broadly speaking, I would have done the same thing that they did. I would have tried to kind of shore up the small businesses. I would have tried to kind of shore up um, kind of gig economy workers. I would have tried to kind of dampen that effect on on the economy. Um, so I think that's kind of roughly what I would have done. And I think that's fair. I think I, I completely agree that, that that politicians do deserve some sympathy because this is a sort of unprecedented environment where I think they they shouldn't get a, a get out of jail free card. Is if you if we roll the clock back to two thousand and eight, I would say that a, a, a big failure among let's call it the cabinet was there's nobody there with any financial or economic experience. Roll the clock forward to today. Uh, there's nobody in the cabinet with any scientific experience, with any STEM 
experience whatsoever. So they're completely at the mercy of the so-called experts. What I think, and I think this is a legitimate, uh, you know, uh, mode of inquiry. I think it's perfectly fair to ask why are why are our politicians drawn from such a narrow base? Surely there should be see some some basic standard of literacy in fields other than law and uh, Oxford PPE. Could couldn't we also say say that um, why can't we draw from from scientists who've got a track record of getting it right? Yeah, and I'm not enough. I'm not That's making fair. I'm not even saying that I know anything about the track record of the the ones that the government have listened to. But yeah. wouldn't that be a better way? Like instead of just saying I'm from X college and therefore yeah. I'm pretty smart, you've got to listen to me. I'm, it's I'm like, from X college and I'm here to help. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, and, and also that there's the, the other aspect of all of this is that we weren't experiencing this and we aren't experiencing this in isolation. And we know that some of the other European countries are at least two weeks ahead of us and some countries are months ahead of us. So mm. we could have actually nuanced what we were doing with information from those other countries. But it doesn't seem like that has occurred. And I totally agree with you that I felt very sorry for the government in the early t stages, although I thought if there's ever a risk and there seems to be a risk, mitigating that risk early is Tim says in the market, if you're going to panic, panic early is the best thing to do. And then you can always unwind it quickly later on. And if there wasn't a problem, that's fantastic. But it seems to be that we've got to the point where it it's sort of, it doesn't look like it was as bad as we feared. And therefore, perhaps the liftoff should be a bit quicker than perhaps we're being advised will be. And so I think that's where perhaps there's some cause for, you know, head scratching and, and perhaps a bit more frustration. My concern at this point would be, uh, I suppose, a variation on the sunk cost fallacy that because the politicians have taken such an extreme, what now seems like a fairly extreme step, they're going to be loath to rescind it easily because there's too much loss of face involved. Yeah, I, yeah, maybe there's some of that playing out. Um, yeah, I, I think the best thing I actually read, and I think, Tim, actually, this was something you posted on Twitter. It was from it was an anonymous comment on the FT page, basically saying herd immunity is not a strategy, mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, the the only way. You know, we come through this is when we develop herd immunity. Whenever we do that, how and however do we do that, whether we do it naturally or whether we do it through a vaccine, uh, you know, kind of some combination. Uh, but that's the that's that is ultimately the end game, and that's it. Um, so you say that's a scientific statement, not a political one. And mm. um, so the question is, um, you know, how, how do you get there? And um, the fact, you know, you just ha it, it takes time. It takes time to build um, kind of herd, herd immunity. So so this is something that you have to manage. And ultimately, the, the, the real determination of um, the number of fatalities that you end up having to suffer is really going to be driven by um, um, the capacity of your health system. If, you've got a com if a country has got a, um, um, a, a good health system, good health um, care provision, um, then they're probably going to be relatively better. In fact, they are going to be relatively better than countries that don't have good health care. And that's actually going to be a much bigger determinant of the, um, the end kind of fatality numbers than, um, than any kind of government action. Um, and as you said, it's totally understandable that everyone spends so much time analysing the government's actions. But the reality is, if you've got a decent health system, you're probably in good shape. And if you don't, you're not. Um, and there's no way around that. And I see, you know, I, I kind of wonder if that's actually what we're kind of seeing playing out here you know i think that the swiss numbers have been kind of 
better than 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 than, than many, certainly better than the UK. And in my experience in Switzerland versus my experience in the UK, the health system is, are, you know, it's like night and day. It's like going into a time warp when you go back to the UK. How do, how does the Swiss system work? Is it mostly private, independent, or mixture of public, private? It's private, basically yeah. private, but it's obviously you know very heavily regulated. Um, you know, the interesting thing, if you read the OECD's health care reports um, or health statistics, they, they go through, you know, they're really interesting reading actually given how politicised the NHS is and how um, kind of religious we are in the UK about it. You're not allowed to criticise it. Um, it's like, you know, we kind of, we, we don't really do religion in the UK, mm. um, but we do the NHS. You know, mm. you can criticise God and, you know, you can, you can do all that stuff, but... Um, uh, you're not allowed to criticise the NHS, um, but um, one of the kind of things that, that you get you hear a lot in the UK is, you know, certainly on the left and from, from Labour, is fears that we're going to privatise the NHS. But if you look at these OECD um, reports, the NHS is, according to the OECD, is the only 100% nationalised health system in the OECD. So any reform, like in other words, every other country in the OECD has a more privatised healthcare system than us, right? So any reform basically will involve us privatising the NHS, which of course mm. the whole country kind of throws its arms up and, and, and panics about. Um, but so yes, the Swiss system is private, is, is, is more private than the NHS for what that's what. What it is is you basically have your own, you, you're obliged to buy insurance, mm. right? So you have to buy insurance from a provider and there's a minimum amount of insurance that you have to buy. And what that, insu- what that means is that it's always a private transaction, right? Um, but there is a guaranteed um, minimum um, provided by the federal government. Um, you, so you, you're guaranteed the minimum insurance uh, policy um, if you don't have a job or you're, you, you can't afford the, um, uh, the basic minimum. And what that equates to, I actually kind of did the arithmetic, um, but although you actually see the money going out of your kind of account every month for your insurance premiums, um, um, the same thing is happening to you in the UK it's just that most employees don't see it because it's played it's it's paid by the employer. It's played at the NI level. So if you actually do the arithmetic, the amount of money that I pay in Switzerland for my kind of basic rate insurance was exactly what I was paying in the UK as national insurance, right? Except in Switzerland, I'm getting this pristine health system, mm-hmm. whereas in, in the UK, I'm getting this dilapidated socialist nightmare that doesn't bloody work, and and you're not allowed to criticise. Every time you go there, you're kind of treated like some kind of malingering time waster that you know that is, that is using up resources for the people that really need it. <laughs> it's a total mess. A perfect mic drop moment. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. You haven't said much about what you actually do right now, by the way, Dylan. So I thought it might be nice for you to tell tell the listeners about your your actual company. So my company is um, is still kind of in the, the, its formative months, um, but um, it's called Coldwood Capital. Um, we are um, we are alternative investment specialists. Um, so we are launching a fund, um, a fund of funds, multi-asset fund of funds, uh, in uh, September. Um, so you know we are you know that will. Well, we hope in September, maybe a little bit before, maybe a little bit after. Um, but so, you know, we are we will be hedge fund managers when, once that is finally launched. Um, in the meantime, we um, we are also writing um, research, um, uh, kind of portfolio construction research. 
uh, which is which we are kind of selling to subscribers every month. Um, so we got that set up in October um, because it's um, it's just a much easier business to set up. Um, a research business is much easier. It's much you know it's not as kind of um, compliance heavy. It's not as regulatory heavy as setting up a, a hedge fund, which is um, you know a bit more painful, a bit more expensive. And um, so you know we set up the kind of research business in October. That's up and running now. Um, you know, and that's 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 getting some. You know, that's that's going well. We're we're getting some really kind of good traction. We're getting some good, interesting, um, engaging um, subscribers um, from. We've got some um, institutions. We've got some hedge funds. We've got some um, uh, high net worths. Uh, we've got some private banks. Um, so you know, we you know, and I said it's the great thing about a kind of subscription business is the relationships that you develop on on, on the you know with your readers. Um, and um, and it's great for information flow. It's great for information exchange, for idea flow, for deal flow. We've seen some very very interesting deals actually, and um, which are coming through that um, that 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 network that's building. And um, so I said we, that that's kind of up and running, and we're hoping to launch the hedge fund. Um, um, in fact, we are going to launch a hedge fund in a couple of months. And the research and the hedge fund really kind of bounce off each other because the stuff that we write about in the in the in the in the monthly um, research is is very much about what kind of things you know we we, we research um, and we write about the ideas that the, the problems that we are trying to solve on, on the fund side right so you know the allocation headaches that we are trying to kind of um, um, find a solution to and the portfolio are exactly what we're going to be writing about you know if you're if we find a very interesting opportunity whether it's a, um, a, 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 a you know a, an individual part of the equity market or a part of the credit market so you're part of the insurance markets or wherever, then a great way to really kind of get your own mind straight is, is to write about it, as, 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 as Tim knows very well. Um, and so the, the, the research business is really kind of, as I said, it, it's, it, it, it's very complementary to, to the hedge fund business. It keeps you engaged with the job of investing money, but it also keeps you on your toes and honest because you've got to think up new ideas rather than just sit on the positions that you thought were good last month. You've got you've got to think of new ones for this month. It's a great discipline. It's a great discipline. Forcing yeah. yourself to write every month is just a great discipline, you know. Do you, um, do you find that as well, Tim? Because you do a lot of writing, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do it and I'm sure Dylan partly does it because he enjoys it. Certainly, I, I, I do it for that reason. But you're right, it does keep you on your toes. The only, I suppose, one of the challenges about the writing uh, about investments is that when you've put something into print, there's a strong tendency to sort of stay loyal to what you've said. And that can be a bit of a rod for your own back because you kind of think, well, if, if it's an acknowledgement of weakness if I say this because last month I said that. So no. you have to sort of continually hold yourself to quite a high standard of... Yeah, so, so that's, that's a really interesting um, observation, Tim, and, and uh, it's a lesson I think I learned the hard way at Salt Gen. Um, and I think... Um, you know, the, at SOPGen, when, when I was working there with Albert, I um, I had, um, I guess I, I kind of, I didn't real, I really didn't realise it at the time. It was only afterwards once I'd kind of stepped back from from that kind of public profile and that kind of goldfish bowl um, um, that we'd been in at the time. Um, when you step out of that and get a bit of time to think, as I reflected, I kind of realised that I had become almost enslaved by my own narratives, mm. you know? So, um, you know, I was known for a particular set of views and a lot of people wanted to talk to me 
not because they particularly wanted to hear my thinking uh, or they were even necessarily interested in my thinking. They just wanted to hear me tell that story again. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, and, I, you know, OK, so I tell the story and you quite enjoy telling the story. Before you know it, you get into this rut where you're kind of pandering to your followers. Mm. And I think that one of the before I started up the research this, and when I say pandering to your followers, you're doing that to your own detriment, mm. right? Because you're not at, you know, you're not keeping an open mind on the range of possible outcomes. No, you're giving people what they want to hear. You're giving people, and it's like the kind of, you know, one of my favorite, it was the um, ACDC guy. Um, and he, I always, I've actually got it written down somewhere. And he said, you know, the thing that people um, have got to understand, but he, he said, the only thing you got, we get criticized a lot. Um, for you know, um, from a lot of the critics for our, for our music, say it's the same. What you got to understand is that um, ACDC, you know, we started out as seventeen-year-olds writing music that we thought seventeen-year-olds would like, and today we still write music for seventeen-year-olds that we think seventeen-year-olds would like. <laughs> and um, and, they, and they've kind of made a career of just doing the same thing over and over and over. And um, they, you know, the crowd turns up because because they, they want to. They want to sing along and they want to kind of, you know, they want to hear the old kind of familiar tracks. And and I think that they that's a kind of a, an example of, of, of someone who, of, a, of an artist who becomes beholden to the followers. And I think that um, before I went into the kind of um, uh, back into, you know, I suppose stepping a bit more into the kind of public arena again, I wanted to be very careful that um, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to allow myself to be blindsided by my past mistakes just because there was an audience for that opinion. Um, and I think that the way to to try and get around that is to just, you know, I, in our research, I draw a bit, and I, I was talking to you earlier, Paul, about the NASDAQ thing. I think there's a very clear distinction I try to make between a view I have, an opinion, right, which is, you know, we've all got opinions, um, but they're cheap. Right? They're not that valuable. Opinion is not really very valuable. I think the best opinion is your action. Yes. What are you doing? Right. So, you know, I think that Taleb says, don't, you know, don't tell me what you think. Show me your portfolio. Mm. Right. And I think that so when I give an opinion, I'm I think I'm very upfront with the fact that listen, here's an opinion. I don't think it's any more valuable than anyone else's opinion, but I give it to you because if you seem to want it. And that's fine. And I could take your opinion and we can exchange opinions, but let's not be under any illusion that anyone's really know much. Whereas if you're telling me what's in your portfolio, okay, that's different. Because if you get that wrong, you're going to get hurt. So I'm assuming that you're going to be doing much more work to make sure you're not getting hurt. So that's a higher quality opinion. The other thing that's a difficult line to tread is, is in relation to dealing, working with clients. People have a very strong opinion about what they want, but they do not have the same strength of opinion as to what they need. And it's and it's bridging those two things. Yeah, I think that's, um, uh, I mean, and that's the weird thing about our business, right? You know, I think typically the, the, the kind of portfolio that looks absolutely fantastic, you know, and your average kind of um, uh, FT reader would look at it and say, uh, or Investors Chronicle reader would look at it and go, yeah, They'd look at each line out and nod, yeah, like that one, like that one, like that, yeah, that one's fine. Yeah, oh yeah, so-and-so said that was a good idea. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh -huh. that is exactly the kind of portfolio which is guaranteed to underperform. 
mm-hmm. right? Whereas if you get a portfolio that's actually got some weird things in there, some quite strange things, some stuff that everyone seems to hate, well, why the hell have you got that? Don't you know that, that nobody's going to be smoking anymore? Why do you got tobacco, right? For, you, 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 you fill a portfolio with that kind of stuff. And you've got a much better chance of generating some decent returns and some outperformance. But no one wants it, right? <laughs> because ultimately, the market is a kind of beauty parade. And, and, and beauty is it's, what you want in investing is ugly. You don't want beauty. Mm. Um, and so it's a, how do you get around that in, in our business? I'm not really sure the answer. The, the only the best I've come up with is that you, you try and get good, smart, educated, open-minded clients um, and then, of course, you try and live up to what you promised them. So you promise low, right? You get smart clients and you promise low. Another mic drop moment. Brilliant. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Excellent. <laughs> so on the, on that note, should we go to media picks, Tim? Why not? Why not? Yeah. Okay. Dylan, do you, do you know the drill with regard to media picks? I remember you had um, Toby Baxendale on. Oh yeah, um, a while ago, and you kind of stumped him. With, 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 I don't oh know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, that's right. So hopefully, I can do a bit better than that. Okay, cool. Maybe I should have edited that bit out. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay. Well, we'll go to we'll go to Tim's first, and then then we'll come to you. So Tim. I'll kick off. I'll kick off, and I'll be brief. Um, so mine is a film called Brightburn. Uh, which I think only came out a year ago, so it's quite quite new. Why have uh, I heard that? I've heard it, that. It's it's well, it's 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 out at the moment on like Sky Movies. So okay, it, it, it'll have been on TV for people who are like Sky subscribers over over recent um, over recent weeks. But Brightburn, the, it's got just I think a terrific premise, which is um, it's like imagine well the the summary. This is this is via Metacritic. The, the website what if a child from another world crash landed on earth sounds a bit like superman but instead of becoming a hero to mankind he proved to be something far more sinister yes you mm. talked about it that's what i've that's why i've heard about it uh maybe mentioned- i've maybe i've maybe i mentioned it before then so in which case i'm giving it a second a second plug no, but cool, either way cool. yeah. either, either way I, I saw it about probably about a month ago but uh it's just an intriguing premise it's one of those things that i mean what is it uh I think Charlie Munger says invert always invert. Yes. And this is a sort of straightforward example of inversion, which is just take the take the Superman uh meme, the Superman mythos, and then just just turn it around. So instead of instead of being a force for good, imagine he's a you know, sadistic satanic little wanker. Bit like bit like Hancock, that film a few Yes, yes. Yes, cool. Whereas that was just incompetent, whereas this one's actually sort of altogether more malevolent. So uh, I remember enjoying it, but it'll also be an intriguing one for people because the meta score for this one, which is the score out of 100 by the critics, is a very lowly 44. So people are either going to like this or hate it. Probably the comic book community or the community. Perhaps, perhaps. But either way, people are either going to love it or hate it. But I, I quite enjoyed it. Brilliant. Dylan, what have you got for us? So I actually um, um, am I allowed to am I allowed to kind of put forward a podcast? Of course oh, you of are. Course. You put anything, anything. So um, I and I'm actually this is kind of something you said earlier, Tim, which which I was just deeply, deeply offended offended by. <laughs> and upset and um, uh, uh, and jealous of and. Oh, you said that you love writing, yeah, and uh, I hate it. I I hate it. I really. It is such a, every every month is just. It's the most painful birth, you know. It's the kind of 
three or four day no epidural screaming mm. and shouting up all night you know the whole just, just 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 a stick to bite on oh god I just yeah i i really i hate the process i love it when i've done it mm. and i love the educational journey and i love laughing at my own jokes when i when i when i write it um but typically i hate it and you love it and and so um, that's I, I, and when I read your stuff, Tim. By the way, you, you actually write like someone who really enjoys it. I think it's um, I think you write you, you write beautifully. That's very kind. There's a straight back at you. <laughs> one, of, <laughs> one of my favourite um, writers is um, oh, that's very kind of you, by the way, Tim. Um, uh, well, one of my favourite writers is um, is uh, uh, Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis. Oh yeah. And um, what uh, I love his books and. Um, as, as I've kind of seen him increasingly um, being interviewed, um, I think I really like the guy. I think I would actually like to sit down and kind of have a beer with him or like, you know, go on a hike with him or something like that. Um, he's a really, really fascinating guy. And he was just interviewed by Tim Ferriss um, on, um, on, on Tim Ferriss' podcast. And I think it only came out last week, but um, I listened to it on Sunday and um, I was just really bowled over by some of the some of the wisdom in it. So he was a guy that could write. He writes beautifully. He talked about one of his motivations for, for a book being a sense of obligation to the story. When he gets the sense that a, a story just needs to be told, it has to be told, and, and he's the only one that's going to do it justice. You know? And he kept talking about this. Sometimes he just has this burning sense of obligation to, to the story. Um, and it wasn't about money. And he talked about being at Solomon's and then, you know, a lot of money there, but walking away after a couple of years, no one could kind of understand why. Of course, he went on to write Lars Boker and the rest is history. But he was just, he's at his core, fundamentally, he's a writer. Um, uh, but he, there was just so much wisdom. There was so much wisdom about, you know, he thinks one of the things he was really good at was, was being bored, right? He's good at being bored. People, he said, people waste too much time being scared to waste time. And, um, uh, you know, he's, 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 he said he's quite good at being slothful and, um, and allowing himself to, so there was, a, there was, there was another thing he said, when you listen to people talk, um, he said, just sit, listen, pay attention. What you usually find is that there is a pattern which emerges in the self narrative, right? People always have a self narrative and like some guys are always the victim. You know, it's always, there's always some injustice that they were in the wrong end of. And they, you know, it wasn't fair. They got hit. You know, it was completely out of order. The other guy got away with it. And, you know, and, and, and kind of, you know, I was left behind trying. Life would have been much better if that hadn't happened to me. And so there's a, I know guys like this, right? And um, others, the kind of the wise guy, right? Someone who's at the, the center of, they're always at the center of the story. They're always the one with the, with the really smart observation that, that suddenly silenced everyone as they realised what words of wisdom these were, or there's always the guy that has the really witty put down and, and kind of you know shuts up the kind of loud mouth, or you know they all, they're always the kind of hero of their story. And what he said was that he said so that was already very interesting to me, right? Because I I've never really articulated it, but now he said it, I see it, I've noticed it, um, and so that was interesting. But what he then said was something I found even more interesting. Which is, he said that I think people should really be careful about their how they tell their self narrative because what they're inadvertently doing is they're writing their own character, right? And um, you almost become your self narrative. And then he said, I realised very early that I was quite happy. And one headmaster 
said to me once, you're the happiest person I've ever met. And, um, and, and Michael just said he was just very, very taken by this. And he made a conscious decision to make himself, and his own self-narrative, to make himself the happiest guy in the story, right? So that he could then live up to that and therefore be happy. So I just thought, you know, that was just a, such a, a, a wonderful kind of couple of insights, really. And the, the whole podcast is just laced with, with them, with these nuggets, you know, and um, I have a very strong bias to listen. I, I like to listen to investors and to entrepreneurs, um, but um, listening to a craftsman like Michael Lewis, who really is at the top of his game, top of his craft, um, you know, for two hours with Tim Ferriss, who's a brilliant interviewer. Um, I mean, it's a, it was, a, it really was very. I mean, it was actually quite a moving two hours. So I would definitely recommend you do it. Fabulous, great. Fantastic. Uh, actually, my my one has um, kind of shifted a little bit because I was going to suggest a film and then it's moved that it was going to be a markets related video. But I'm going to save that for another day. Um, and your your one, Dylan, has inspired me to give the the book which was written by Stephen King on writing. And mm. I've just recently finished that. And it's um, I, I thought it was absolutely excellent, whether you're into writing or not. It was a really good read because it was a it was basically about his history and how he got into writing and what he says about writing pretty much is is there's some elements of um how you should actually go about it and he gives some advice as to style and structure and what's in your toolbox as a writer and um but it but it came down to pretty much that he loved writing and <laughs> that kind of goes against what you've said a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you may find his book really interesting. I did. And I think if anyone is an aspiring writer in, of any kind um, or just wants a, a, a really interesting history as to how he became a writer, then On Writing by Stephen King is is just excellent. And, uh, you know, he comes across as far more humble and and straightforward. And what I really like about him is he, he just doesn't bullshit. He just says this... this all books should be as short as fucking possible, you know, and and that's almost like you start for ten. I'm like, you know, good on him, you know. He's not he's not pulling any punches here. So, Dylan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just to remind people, if they want to go to your website or follow you on Twitter, could you give us your your links? Yeah, um, so I'm on Twitter as uh, as Dylan Grice. Um, so I think it's just at Dylan Grice. Uh, and um, I'm on, uh, so our website is um, www.coldwoodcapital.com. And um, not that there's much on it, but, you know, you can get some sample research. You can get, you can sign up for a trial there if you're interested. Um, or you can go to the ERIC website if you're an institutional uh, investor. Um, but, I, yeah, I think the best place is probably Twitter. You know, I'm, I'm not as, um, I, I don't, I'm not as good on it as, as, as someone like, you know, you, Tim. <laughs> Um, I, I go through periods of not particularly engaging with it and then periods of engaging with it quite heavily, but I do always answer to direct messages and I do try to answer to um, um, uh, people when they, when they comment on, on anything I've written. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time and your thoughts. And no, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm um, really flattered to, flattered to finally meet on your show. I feel I've arrived. Many are called, but few are chosen. <laughs> <laughs> and and good yeah. luck with the fun. Yeah, sure thing, man. Definitely. Okay, thanks, guys. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Dylan. Thank you. Hey guys. Take care. Peace,
Bye. Thank you, Tim. That was excellent. Good stuff. And thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you soon. See you soon. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.